The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Franklin, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Well, our scripture reading today is from Acts chapter 21, verses 17 to 36. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. And they've been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. (laughs) Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus, all will know that there is nothing in what they've been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and offering and the offering presented for each one of them. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of people followed, crying out, away with him. This is the word of the Lord. 
Thank you, Sherry, for reading that passage for us this morning. If we haven't met, I'm Russ Ramsey. I'm the pastor here at Christ Pres Cool Springs. It's great to be with you all uh, today as we come to this passage in the book of Acts. We're making our way now through the last, um, the last 10 chapters of the book of Acts. We started a series on Acts maybe two years ago, and we've been taking it in, uh, in thirds, I guess you might say, and so we're in the last third now. And uh, when, you, when you look at the arc of the narrative of the Bible, it, it, it basically is an arc that goes from Eden to Rome. Uh, and you're, we're at a point right now where we're starting to see that final turn to Rome, where the Apostle Paul has, as the, as the apostle to the Gentile world who's been on these missionary journeys and who's been proclaiming the gospel throughout the Roman Empire, um, now returns to Jerusalem, where he spent a lot of time, a very familiar city to him. And here he is arrested. And this arrest that happens in Jerusalem is, is like a series of dominoes that fall that end up with Paul making his way in a very circuitous way, circuitous route to Caesar himself. And, uh, and so I'm excited for us to unpack that as we work our way through these remaining chapters in the book of Acts. Today, I really want to focus on a portion of uh, what Sherry just read for us, the first part, up until he is um, uh, kind of accosted by this mob and is, and is beaten and is arrested. But this passage, what I want us to see as we're looking at this text is, is how the Lord is at work and how the Lord is at work in more than one place at a time. It can be easy for us to think that we can only see the faithfulness of the Lord at work in the ways that it relates to us, in the ways that it relates to whatever it is that we're going through, whatever we're thinking about, whatever it is that we feel like we need, whatever we feel like we understand. Uh, but here, you see Paul returning to Jerusalem, and he and James have this conversation where they begin to compare notes about how the Lord is working, but they have to catch each other up. So this is a turn in the book of Acts. He heads to Jerusalem. He's arrested. He's really not going to walk free again uh, until he is in the presence of Caesar himself. But when, when Paul and his friends finally make their way back to Jerusalem, they go to visit James. And this is, this is James, the half-brother of Jesus, so this is not James of Peter, James, and John. If you remember earlier in the book of Acts, um, James of Peter, James, and John, that James, James the son of Zebedee, was beheaded by Herod when Peter was arrested. This is, this is James, the half-brother of Jesus. I love saying the half-brother of Jesus because they had different dads, right? But James was the half-brother of, of Jesus. What's great about this story of just even knowing this is that when you look in the Gospels, you see that Jesus' siblings, he had siblings, that they didn't believe who he was. And here, you see, well, actually, now James believes. And so James, this is the one who is the author of the letter of James that we read in our Bibles. Paul goes and he visits James in Jerusalem, and he visits the Jerusalem church, and when he arrives with his compatriots, many people are wondering how this visit is going to go. And the reason they're wondering is because 
the ministry that James is tending to and the ministry that Paul is tending to are very different from each other. So James, he has his ministry focused in Jerusalem, and it's primarily a ministry that's focused on Jewish people. And Paul is this apostle to the Gentile world. By the way, I should mention, I'm, I'm, my voice is not 100% today. I'm a little bit under the weather, so if you, you'll, you'll hear that. Um, just bear with me. We'll, we'll be fine. The 8.30, we made it through. We'll be fine. But Paul is, is caught between these two poles of the Jewish world and the Gentile world. And he's caught there in a really unique way because he is both a Jew and a Roman citizen. And so he's a Jewish apostle to a Gentile audience. And so he's been out doing his ministry and word of his ministry has made its way back to the church in Jerusalem where James has been leading. And he hasn't been there to explain himself. And so stories have been told and it's left people there wondering about him. And what they're wondering is where do his loyalties really lie? Because the stories that they had heard about Paul are ones that we've talked about in recent weeks where, where they're hearing stories where it sounds like Roman authorities kind of maybe regard Paul in a positive light, that the Gentile world is welcoming him, this Jewish apostle, that Roman magistrates abroad are honoring Paul's Roman citizenship and that Paul is appealing to his Roman citizenship. That even the military tribune in Jerusalem, whose name is Claudius Lysias, seems to take this protective stance when it comes to Paul, watching out for him and watching out for other Roman Christians. And they're trying to make sense of, of this. They're trying to understand, like, what is the relationship between Paul and the Christians that he leads and the Roman Empire and the Jewish people in Jerusalem? And they don't know because they haven't really had a chance to interact with him that much. And so Paul comes back to Jerusalem with his friends. And when he does, they're very warmly received when they arrive. But they're received by believers there. But, but then when they, when they go to the Jerusalem church, that's when they start to sense tension. Because James and Paul represented two arms of evangelism, James reaching out for Jewish people, Paul reaching out for Gentile people. And these two men had spent time together before. We read about this earlier in Acts, that during the early days of the church's existence, Paul actually trained under James. He studied under him. They, they're two men who genuinely supported one another and encouraged each other in their work. But as their respective movements grew, which they did, so did questions members of their flock raised about one another. And so there were some in James' church who were wondering how far Paul had wandered or maybe even jettisoned his Jewish upbringing. Had the customs of his people lost their meaning for him completely? Had he abandoned his Jewish roots? Was he telling people who were becoming Christians that they too were obligated to abandon 
their Jewish heritage. You can imagine that for somebody who grew up in Jerusalem, who lived there, who was Jewish and who lived in Jerusalem their whole lives, that this would be a really hard thing to hear. And so Paul, when he arrived in Jerusalem, he wanted to establish goodwill with the church. And the first thing he did when he got there uh, is he met with James and he presented a collection of money that he had been gathering from churches around the Roman Empire. We've been reading about this that he'd been taking these collections um, over the course of his missionary journeys for the church in Jerusalem because the church in Jerusalem was experiencing a famine. And so we didn't read about that in this passage today, but Luke mentions it actually in Acts 24, a couple chapters later, Acts 24, 17, where Paul talks about arriving in Jerusalem and presenting this gift that he's been collecting from these other churches. And it was a generous gift. But the amount of the gift was really kind of beside the point. The point was that the gift itself was a symbol. And it was a symbol of solidarity. The collection that he had gathered was this symbol of of indebtedness and gratitude from the churches scattered throughout the Roman Empire for the church in Jerusalem. It was a way of saying to the church in Jerusalem, Jerusalem, it really is the epicenter of the faith that had ventured out to all these Roman towns. And so the financial gift said that although we all belong to the same church, to one church, Jerusalem really, the Jerusalem church really is their mother. And so Paul prayed that the Jerusalem church would receive this gift as an expression of that affection. To his great relief, they did. They received it as as an expression of affection, and they received it in a spirit of gratitude. And then after handing over the collection of aid, Paul told James all the things that the Lord had been doing throughout Rome. He talked about persecution, the persecution that they had faced in the name of Christ He told them about the churches that were being planted all throughout, churches that had cropped up, some that that Paul and his friends had planted themselves and others that when they would roll into a town they would find was already there. And the reason those churches were there because it was the product of this Christian dispersion from Jerusalem after that first Pentecost, after Jesus' ascension, where the church had been spreading already as a result of the ministry that James was now leading. And so as James and other leaders in the Jerusalem church heard these stories, they they praised God for what they were hearing because the name of Christ was going out in the power of the Holy Spirit throughout throughout the, the entire world, just as Jesus said it would. It's fascinating to think about how new everything was at this point. Right? The church was new. The expressions of faith were new. The tenets of faith were were established and they were centered on the person and the work of Jesus Christ. But but for Gentile believers to hear this, they were hearing, wait, I, I can believe in this Jesus and I can follow him, but I don't have to convert to Judaism first. And Jewish people were hearing, wait, I can believe in the Messiah, that the Messiah has come but I don't have to abandon my heritage in the process. Both of these groups are trying to figure out what it means to do that, what it means to live like that. 
It's interesting because that's a, a problem that hasn't, or that's, a, that's an opportunity, I guess, that hasn't really gone away for the church ever since, right? That we have ways that are familiar to us of worshiping Jesus, and there is such a thing as orthodoxy, a foundational Christian faith, the Nicene Creed, which we're going to recite in a little bit together. But there's this range of experiences that come with it. And so James and Paul are together and they're talking, and James raises an issue for Paul. He says there's a, there's a potential situation brewing. And it's, and it's this. This is how James says it. He says, we, we celebrate what the Lord has done to grow his church in the Gentile world. We love that. We're thankful for that. But he's also been at work here in Jerusalem. And the Jerusalem church has grown by thousands and many of those who believe here have, have heard rumors that what you teach, Paul, is you teach Jews to abandon the law so that they can live at peace with Gentile believers. There are many people here who have heard, who have heard rumors that you teach descendants of Abraham not to be circumcised or to walk according to our ancient customs. What are we going to do about this? How are we going to navigate this with you here? Because surely the word is already out that you're in town. What's important to understand with James here is James is not really concerned with what Paul was teaching. They knew they were on the same page. They knew they were on the same team. They were preaching the same Christ. But James was concerned with how Paul was perceived. So there's a pastoral concern here for James. And it's a, it's a significant one. And it's this. If Jerusalem Christians couldn't believe and they couldn't receive Paul because of his association with Gentile people, then they were going to miss the heart of the gospel. And the heart of the gospel is how the grace of Christ reaches beyond place, it reaches beyond race, but they have an obstacle to receiving Paul because many are hearing rumors as though Paul wants to just burn down their entire way of life altogether with no regard for it at all. Paul was a person who actually did live as a practicing Jew. He was somebody who was very familiar with Jewish customs. It was also true that whenever he heard about Gentiles embracing Jewish customs to express their Christianity, he spoke out against it and said, nothing should be added to the finished work of Christ for salvation. We're saved by grace through faith. Full stop. No traditions, no customs, those don't save you. Freedom in Christ means you rely on his grace alone for salvation, not on traditions, not on rituals. But for Paul, this was a freedom that cut two ways. Because it didn't just mean that Gentiles were excused from observing Jewish customs. It also meant that Jewish Christians were free to continue practicing their traditions and their customs if they wanted to. As long as they understood, these don't save you. But the rumors in Jerusalem, among many, were that Paul wanted Christians to abandon all of that. Jewish tradition, Jewish customs. 
And James recognized this is, this is a problem. And Paul recognized it was a problem too. He didn't want to be misunderstood. Because if believers in Jerusalem dismissed what he was doing, then they were going to miss this key part of their own faith, that the gospel was meant to go out to the furthest reaches of the world, drawing believers from every tribe, tongue, and nation. That was the idea. And so James proposes a solution to Paul. And what I love about this is that we can be a culture that says, nobody can tell me what to do. You can't, you can't boss me around. If, if you don't like the way I am, you just have to deal with me. But here James is saying it. It's going to be hard for people to trust you unless you show them something. Show them they can trust you. And so his solution is, listen, there are four men in the Jerusalem church who've just taken the Nazarite uh, cleansing ritual, which is a season of fasting during which celebrants refrain from cutting their hair and they fast, and then at the end of it, they get their heads shaved. And it's a, it's a ceremonial purification that they go through. And Paul's been away from Jerusalem, certainly long enough to have made himself ceremonially unclean according to Levitical code. And James says, perhaps you, you Paul, could join these four other men and you could go through the ceremonial cleansing yourself and maybe out of your own pocket you could pay for them as well as yourself. I've got a little bit of tea left. I've got a little bit of sermon left. Should be coming in right on time. <laughs> if Paul did this, then people would see, they would have a chance to see that he had not distanced himself from his Jewish upbringing, and it would be a sign to all that Paul still respected their customs. And so Paul conceded to this, to James' request, and he went to the temple the next day to give official notice that he would go through the ceremonial purification and that he would return in a week's time and complete the ritual. It's important to understand there were no theological grounds for Paul to participate in this ceremony. He wasn't doing this out of a theological obligation. He was just caring for the consciences of his brothers and his sisters in Christ. This Nazarite vow was familiar to him. He'd done it before. In fact, he'd done it about five years earlier in Corinth when he was there. And here in Jerusalem, it's just an act of humility. That's all it is. It's an act of humility to show people, I know you've heard rumors about me, that I'm trying to empty people of their Jewish traditions and customs, and that's not the point. I'll participate in them. And so he does this as an outward sign of gratitude to God and respect for his people. It's a gesture of cultural sensitivity. We have many in this church who have been involved in international missions. If you're ever involved in international missions, one of the things that you learn quickly, Lord willing, you learn before you go, is the importance of cultural sensitivity, that there will be foods that you will eat and things that you will wear and customs that you will embrace when greeting people, when, when leaving people, when doing all kinds of things that are just part of the culture. And if you don't learn those things and you don't show a willingness to participate in those things, you can't really expect that culture to regard you as a trustworthy voice to speak into their lives. And so here Paul is doing that this gesture of cultural sensitivity that both he and James hoped would 
open people to what he had to say about Christ. And then we read the rest of the passage, which we'll talk about more um, next week. But we read about how this act of deference actually caught the attention of many Jewish unbelievers as well, who not only opposed association with Gentiles, but they opposed association with Christians at all. And there's this kerfuffle that ends up with Paul getting beaten and then arrested, and he gets arrested in order to not be beaten to death. And that arrest is a chain reaction that eventually has him in the presence of Caesar himself. But we'll get there. But today, I just want to close by making some remarks about this with regard to us being five years old today as a congregation. So... So in this passage, Paul and James come together. And one of the things they do is they compare notes. They talk about how each has seen the Lord work. One of the things I get to do as a pastor is I get to compare notes with you all. Some of you who, you've been here since the very beginning when we were meeting in the upper school atrium at the Old Hickory campus. Um, Others of you came over between now and then some of you kind of in groups, some of you individually, some of you because you knew other people here, some of you walked in the door and you didn't know anybody here at all. Some of you came here from other countries not speaking the language. It's beautiful how the Lord knits communities together. The Lord for James and Paul, the Lord was at work in both of their respective areas of ministry. The Lord was at work in the church in Jerusalem with James, and the Lord was at work in Paul's ministry around Asia Minor, and they looked different, but it was the same God that was working in them. The Lord works in so many ways, and he works in so many places. He builds up, he heals, he confronts, he challenges, he nurtures. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. How has the Lord worked in your life? How has he worked in your life since you've been a part of this congregation? Think about this. On the occasion of this fifth anniversary of our church, how has the Lord used this church in your life? How has he been at work? I remember when we started. I remember those initial gatherings. I remember one in particular when I was looking around. It was maybe the second time we had gotten together. And we were in the process where we were like just ordering all the stuff on Amazon that you need, like the pack and plays and the, all the toys and musical equipment and cables and mic stands and all this stuff that was just going to go into a trailer out there that we would then load and unload. We would, un, sorry, unload and then reload uh, every Sunday at the hotel. For most of those Sundays, we were hauling that trailer back and forth, um, using Bruce Williams' pickup truck to do it. And I remember... When that second Sunday or so, standing in the upper school atrium and thinking, I wonder where we're going to be in six months. I wonder where we're going to be in one year. I wonder where we're going to be in five years. And here we are. I, I never imagined that we would have been meeting in a place like this. I didn't know who the Lord would bring in to be part of this community. I didn't know the role that Spring Hill would play or Cottonwood would play or other neighborhoods that had become such a, 
uh, integral part of, of the communities within communities that are a part of this church. It's such a beautiful thing. I didn't know who our team would be. And the different iterations of it over the years, people that we would grow to love and that would serve here and, the, and that would continue to come on, people within our congregation who would join uh, the staff team and, and, and contribute so much and be such a part of the flavor and the makeup of who we are, how the Lord would be working in us and through us. And one beauty of questions like these is that we really just have no way of knowing how the Lord is going to work. He will do what he will do, but we know from Ephesians 3.20, that he will always do exceedingly more than we ask or think. And so these past five years for me have been a great gift, a great gift. And it's been gifts upon gifts, friendships that I just didn't see coming, people that I have grown to love deeply, friends that I have the honor of serving with as we nurture this community. And I love what the Lord is building here. I love what he's building here. And it's one of my great honors, really, to walk with you all in this particular season of life at Christ Pres Cool Springs. And so my prayer is that the Lord would continue to deepen our love for him and our connection to one another and our service to this community, all for the glory of his name. Amen? Let me pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, <clears throat> I thank you for bringing us to this place. I thank you for whatever it is that Nate Evans just handed me. And uh, Lord, I, I ask that you would um, continue to deepen the community that we have here. I thank you for bringing a guy like Nate Evans into this church to be part of our team, to be somebody who uh, would step in and be our director of student and families, but be so much more than that, to be a, a, a guy who shows up at practices and games and plays and, and uh, celebrates things in the lives of young people in our church and comes alongside families and supports and encourages them and hands me hot cup of teas in the middle of a prayer. Lord, I thank you for the way that you have made this church a, a community of people who really want to serve and really want to help um, support and nurture this community here for ways that people have stepped in, for those who have come through the doors here limping and hurting from previous experiences or from being away from the church, for the stories of the ways that you have repaired uh, people's uh, connections to the local body of Christ by way of their community here. Lord, would you continue to do that? Would you continue to make this church an outpost of beauty? Uh, in, in Cool Springs. And Father, we thank you for your mercy and your grace and your kindness. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.